One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to all these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to the person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts him will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Greg. A special thank you to Charles. Luke and Eric are both on vacation, which meant if not for Charles, you guys would have to put up with me leading worship. Yikes. So thanks be to God for his mercy and many gifts in the body of Christ. All right, we're going to dive into Luke 14 in just a second here, but if you've not already heard it, Father's, happy Father's Day. And uh, if you have the ability to reach out to your earthly father and to uh, tell them some manner you love them and you express your thanksgiving and honor to them, do so with the grace of Jesus uh, after church. All right, join me in a word of prayer. We'll begin our study. Jesus, thank you for your word and the way that it can instruct our souls. We want to be people that are humble and contrite and who tremble at your word. So would you help us to hear with spiritual ears and have our hearts open to receive that which you have for us so that we would not make the worst mistake of all, puffing ourselves up with pride. Would we be humbled at the foot of the cross, we pray, Jesus, in your name, amen. Years ago, I was invited to quite a dinner party. It was in a spot in Miami, right on the water, really upscale neighborhood with a house to match. Once we got inside, things only got better. Extravagant furnishings, big table with gourmet food there. And pretty soon we had a feeling that we were in for quite a feast that evening. Only I tell you, I left that place with a bitter taste in my mouth. It wasn't because of the quality of the food. It's because it was served with a side of pride. Pretty quickly it became obvious that all of us guests, we were just planets orbiting around the sun. That is our host. 
Everything was all about him. No matter what conversation topic we were on or story got told, he made sure it turned back to something that he did even better in a grander way. He regaled us with his many tales and exploits. Again and again, he all came back to him. He made sure we knew about all of his artifacts that he had acquired around the world, his toys, and how expensive they all were. At the end, it was a nauseating experience. You could not wait to get out of there. Because being around a self-absorbed, prideful heart is not an experience anyone enjoys, right? Now, you know this. At some point or the other, we've all been one of those planets orbiting one of those suns. And we couldn't wait to get out of that orbit. Well, that's already bad enough. But according to Jesus this morning, prideful hearts don't just have dangers for us socially. They also have dangers for us spiritually. Because this is going to be our main point this morning. If we don't humble our hearts here and now, will never be honored in heaven. We could put it another way. Humble yourself now or be humbled later on the day of judgment. That's Jesus' lesson for us this morning, which is why we'll see two attributes of the prideful heart that could keep us from being lifted up in honor on judgment day. I'll give you those two main points up front. First, verses one through six. First attribute of a prideful heart, my rules or else. My rules, my rules or else. And then 7 through 11, my recognition above all else. My recognition above all the else. And all this, I I hope we learn to humble ourselves here so one day we'll be honored in heaven. Let's begin in that first section, one through six, my rules or else. We pick up the story. Jesus and his disciples are on that road to Jerusalem. And along the way, they're having a whole bunch of encounters. He's talking to people. He's doing miracles. And this continual opposition from the religious leaders, specifically the Pharisees, keeps ratcheting up. Now, the passage we're in, they take a pit stop for a very high society sort of dinner. Uh, Jesus is invited into the home of someone who's described as a ruler of the Pharisees. Now, we don't know exactly what a ruler of the Pharisees is. Um, Clearly, it was someone with quite a bit of status. While we don't know an official title, we do know the disposition of the man as well as his friends that he invited with him. Look with me on verse 1. One Sabbath, he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. They were watching him carefully. And so it's Sabbath day. That means that this would have been an especially important, especially exclusive sort of dinner. Only the best and brightest would have been invited. It was a time for the theological heavyweights to throw their weight around and show that they belonged. Well, Jesus, the rabbi traveling teacher, was invited. But we're told that they are watching Jesus. And you must not think that that means they are looking carefully to learn something from Jesus. It's more the look of a predator. Uh, Our family dog, Willow, extremely friendly, loves every human being she meets. 
but she has an arch nemesis, the squirrels in our backyard. When we open the back door, open the door, I say, Willow, sit. And Willow will sit. But I see her eyes looking past me. And if there's a squirrel present, I can tell by looking at her because her muscles are tightened and she is completely still. And the moment I say free, she goes out like a lightning bolt. Usually she doesn't catch a squirrel, but sometimes she does. Well, that's the sort of look that the religious leaders have with Jesus. Uh, They are watching him, just waiting for him to stumble. And in fact, we'll see in a second, they've carefully laid a trap in the hopes that he will stumble by their design. They are looking for an opportunity to make him lose status and standing because Jesus is becoming more and more of a problem. Well, what's the trap? Well, it's a bit odd at first. Verse 2, behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Uh, So the way that's written, it's a bit of a surprise. Behold, there's this seriously sick guy in front of Jesus. That term dropsy, uh, probably our modern medical term before it would be edema. It's uh, the retention of fluids in the abdomen and your extremities. It's not a good sign when it happens. Usually people that have it are seriously sick, maybe on the point of dying very soon. So it's the sort of person you expect to see on a gurney hooked up to tubes, not enjoying a gourmet meal of high society. Uh, I think the implication is obvious. This is not a guy that just wanders his way into such an exclusive club, which means he's there by design. Because Jesus confronting this man, according to the religious leaders, was going to put Jesus in an untenable position. They were hoping to catch him on the horns of a dilemma. See, Jesus had a reputation for having a compassionate heart. We saw that last week. Even for people who reject him, Jesus sees sinners and sufferers, and his heart is to show them mercy and compassion. And that had resulted in Jesus healing lots and lots of people, even some that were seriously sick. Jesus had even done that on the Sabbath running afoul of these very religious leaders who thought that no work should be done, even work of compassion on the day that God said was meant for rest. So the Pharisees hoped in this moment Jesus would be left with no good options. Either he could not heal the man, in which case his reputation as someone with compassion would be shattered. Or he could show compassion to the man and heal him, and then prove their point. That Jesus is a lawbreaker who breaks the Sabbath even in front of the religious elite. So they think, we've got Jesus trapped. Horns of a dilemma. But Jesus is about to turn this into a wily Coyote, roadrunner sort of situation, and spring their very own trap on themselves. Look what he does in verse 3. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Jesus does something oh so simple. He simply takes the ball and puts it in their court. And in so doing, he makes it so that the horns of the dilemma are theirs to deal with. Now think about the position they're in now. Either they can say that it's okay to heal on the Sabbath, 
and their entire house of cards of man-made religion comes crashing down on top of them. Or they could say, no, Jesus, it's unlawful to heal on the Sabbath, in which case they will be responsible for the lack of compassion for the seriously sick man. In other words, Jesus has flipped the script on them, and now they are left with no argument, nothing they can say, which is why they respond by saying nothing. Uh, They are left in stunned silence. They said nothing because there was nothing they could say. Jesus had them cornered. But Jesus is not one to just let an advantage like that sit. He presses it home in verse 4. But they remained silent. Then he, that's Jesus, took him, that's the seriously sick man, and healed him. Now Luke doesn't spend any time describing how it happens. Somehow or the other, that deadly buildup of fluid went away, and this man was made whole by the power and compassion of Jesus. But notice, that's not the point of the story. Jesus sends the guy away right afterward. He exits stage left as soon as he's healed. Uh, The point of it is the confrontation, because Jesus again drives home his point to the Pharisees in verse 5, and he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out. This is picking up on the run-ins Jesus has already had, even back in chapter 13, with the Pharisees about doing compassion on the Sabbath. Uh, As we talked about a couple weeks ago, there was carve-outs, even in the man-made rules on top of the rules in the Bible, for what the Sabbath day, what keeping the Sabbath day was meant to look like. Uh, That meant that it was permissible to show compassion to your ox or your goat because oxes and goats still need to eat and drink and relieve themselves whether it's Saturday or Sunday. So even the Pharisees in their tight web of man-made regulations had a category for compassion. They just didn't apply that category to anyone that actually mattered, you know, like people. Jesus points this out. You guys are so hypocritical that you're applying one standard to your animals and you're not applying that same standard to even your sons? Now again, there is no response to this. Uh, Jesus is utterly devastating in his divine logic here, showing that their man-made rules don't even make sense according to their own estimation. And so there's nothing to say and they say nothing. And the silence was deafening. Score one for team Jesus. Now that's a start, uh, a bit of an awkward start to what is going to be the setting of this dinner party. They'll go on for the, uh, we'll look at both this week and next week. But what are we to take from this first chunk of it? Well, I think first and foremost, come back to that theme that is the compassion of Jesus. But this time, particularly, The need for the compassion of Jesus to trump the cold adherence to man-made rules. Um, It is not wrong to have man-made rules that we live by. You could call them convictions. All of us have them. Uh, There are different ways where we think it's the best way to live, where the Bible does not clearly speak. Well, the Bible clearly speaks on something that's a command from God. Do not steal. Do not commit uh, sexual immorality. 
Those things are non-negotiables. God speaks directly to them. But think of all the other things in your life that you have convictions about the way you're going to live, even rules that you have for yourself. Uh, Most of the time you absorb them from your parents. Uh, Things like how much debt will you take out for a mortgage? Or what is considered a job well done mowing the lawn? Or how do you celebrate holidays like Father's Day? You can't point to a Bible verse and say, well, we do it this way because of this verse. And yet, undoubtedly, there are rules, stated or not, that you and your family and the people around live by, right? It's not wrong to have those convictions. The problem is when you turn those convictions into a reason to not show the compassion of Jesus to people who are suffering and dealing with sin. According to the example of Jesus, that's a reason to cut through the red tape of our made-up rules. If it means the difference between someone receiving care and compassion or not. One good example of this in the 1850s, uh, missionary Hudson Taylor. He had a heart for the people of China. And he realized that there was a barrier between him and the locals. He didn't look like them. And that was making it harder for him to show them the compassion of Jesus. So he made a decision. He was going to do something that was considered undignified and uncouth for a Westerner living in his day. He decided to grow his hair out and even to dye it black and wear it like the locals did. All because he thought the compassion of Jesus was more important than these man-made rules, even of what's acceptable in his society. I think it's a wonderful example for us that we need to think through. When when there are maybe social norms or even family expectations that get in the way of caring for someone's soul or healing something that's broken in someone's heart. According to Jesus, one has to take priority of the other. Compassion trumps the rules of man. That's first. Secondly, we need to be able to tell the difference between commands and convictions if we're going to have any hope of doing that well. Again, none of us are free to disregard the things God has actually said. And to be clear, Jesus, in this and the other passages where he has run-ins about the Sabbath, Jesus is not violating the Sabbath. Uh, Remember, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. The, The Sabbath was actually created as a picture of the rest that Jesus himself brings between God and man. It's a picture of what heaven will be like. The eternal rest we'll have in our heavenly home. Jesus is not in some way breaking God's law by showing compassion and doing miracles on the Sabbath. No, he is Lord of the Sabbath. He's fulfilling it. Now, as Christians, though, we have this difficult question of what is the difference between a command that the Bible does say and a conviction that the rules that we need in order to live in this world Uh, One of the easiest ways to do is to test is just ask yourself, do I have a clear Bible verse that says someone must do this thing the way I want it to be done? If not, chances are it is a conviction and not a command. Now, if the command is there, don't apologize for it. It's not wrong to insist that others and hold yourself to the standard of the things that God clearly states. But when it comes to all of these man-made rules... 
a little dose of humility goes a long, long way. Uh, one area where I've seen this uh, be a, a stumbling block in a lot of families is uh, the topic of the day, fatherhood. Um, so fathers, let me just say, you've got a hard job. You were called to bring your kids up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's a high calling. And yes, you've got to fill in a lot of these convictions. Their heart and mind need to know how to treat people well, how to do work, how to study, uh, all the things needed to be able to just live in the world. And chances are they're going to get those from you. And there is a season in life where, because of Ephesians 6 that says, children, obey your parents, there's a season where your house, your rules, is the way it goes across the board. Unless it's sin, your children are bound to do things your way as long as they're under your protection and your provision when you're the adult and they are the children, right? Now, where I've seen this become a problem, though, is when those children grow up. And that transition from the authoritative, do it this way because I say so and you must, to, well, they are adults now. And now you are essentially telling them, you might want to do it this way because I think it's a good idea. Now, that's a world of difference between those two. And when you fail to make that distinction between them, it causes incredible friction in your relationships with your adult children. So whether you're young like me and you have kids in the house now and you need to just get used to the fact that right now it's like this, but it's not always going to be this way, or you've already transitioned and you're already dealing with that more peer-type relationship with your adult kids, with the help of the Lord, humbly, don't try and push your convictions on your kids. Uh, realize the difference between a conviction and a command. Your relationships will be far better for it. One of the marks of spiritual pride is the insistence that my rules or else, my way or the highway. But that's not the heart that we're supposed to have toward each other. We're supposed to be reasonable, to consider the needs of others. And even, yes, to, in humility, acknowledge that there might be another way to do the same thing we're, uh, we're convicted to do. All right, uh, the first one is relating to my rules. Second, it's related to status, my recognition above all else, verses 7 through 11. Now, that was an awkward start to the dinner party, but Jesus doesn't leave, and in fact, he's just getting started. So verse 7, he notices something occurring. Uh, back in the ancient world, especially where Jesus was, uh, the pecking order socially was much more obvious to the people you were around. You could tell the difference between someone who was due a lot of honor and respect and someone who was due less. Uh, in that case, it was often reflected in these sort of dinner parties in the seating arrangement. Those with higher social standing would be seated in seats of honor that would be right next to the host, to the right or to the left. And then a ladder of social standing made its way rung by rung down as you moved out one seat further on each side in a horseshoe pattern. Uh, that meant there was no guessing where you stood 
your standing was immediately obvious to you and everyone else in the room. Well, Jesus sees something occurring. Maybe there was some sort of cue that the meal was about to start and people started moving toward the table. Somehow or the other, they started jockeying for the prime seats. Maybe someone tried to sit down before the other person got there. Or maybe someone put their arm around the host in hopes that that would get them a little higher on the pecking order. Somehow or the other, Jesus sees that, and we're told in verse 7, it's for that reason that he told this parable. I'll read it for you in verses 8 through 10. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. It is a skin-crawlingly awkward moment that you can only really feel if you put yourself in the parable. Now imagine for a second, you are in that ancient dinner party with that ascending social ladder based on seat arrangement, and you think you have staked out a spot that is maybe on the border of what you are due, but certainly within the bounds of what someone of your standing could have. Maybe not number one, but seat three or four. You sit down confidently and others start filling in around you. And then to your horror, you see someone that you know immediately is of higher social standing than you come in late. And you see the host look around the table and there are no open seats. And then look at you. And then the host walks across as everyone around the table watches and he comes over to you and he says, uh, friend, uh, I'm going to need that seat. Now, if you had a tail at that moment, it would be between your legs. With shame, your face is hot, you're sweaty, you just feel awful. You wish there was a hole you could crawl into and just die and everyone would forget about you. But instead, you have to get up and you have to walk down rung by rung until the Finally, there is a seat available for you at the very bottom of the social pecking order. Do you feel how awkward that would be? Well, Jesus says you don't want that to happen to you. So instead, here's a different strategy. Instead, find a seat you know you are of a higher standing than. A seat that's two rungs, maybe call it three rungs lower than you deserve. Go sit there. Because then what's going to happen is after everyone fills in the table, the, the host is going to look around and he's going to say, oh, look at that. My dear friend is seated much too low for his standing. And he will come up and in front of everyone say, let me lift you up to a higher place where you deserve to be. And in front of everyone, you will be given the seat of honor that you deserve. Now, why would Jesus tell this parable? I assure you it's not to avoid awkward moments at dinner parties. Uh, there is a spiritual application that he had in mind, and thankfully it's spelled out for us in verse 11. Here it is. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself 
will be exalted. Jesus says we all have two choices. Either try to pretend in your pride to be something right now, and one day be with shame awakened to the fact that you are nothing, or preemptively humble yourself, get low, and know that one day God will delight to lift you up to a place of honor. And what Jesus is describing here is fully in line with what he's been teaching all through Luke's gospel. That the proud need to have their pretensions pricked and know that they are not nearly as safe as they assume. And yet those who the world thinks nothing of, if their hearts are humble before God, they can know with confidence that one day they will be lifted up in honor. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you're not sure you're a Christian. My guess is you've been hearing lots of messages telling you that your fundamental problem is that you don't have enough self-esteem. That the real problem that you and everyone else has is that we don't think well enough of ourselves. We get down too easily. We listen to the th negative things people say about us. And so we don't live up to our potential and accomplish all we can and live lives of joy. So the solution, of course, is just to lift yourself up. In your own eyes, see yourself as beautiful and honorable and good. And then you'll feel good about yourself, right? You've, I'm sure you've heard messages like that, maybe even your entire life. But according to the Bible, that's the worst advice anyone could ever give you. Because according to Jesus, your problem is not that you don't think highly enough about yourself. The problem is that in your pride, you don't realize just how low you need to get before God. See, the message of the Bible is that we are not all praiseworthy and good. God is not just biding his time, waiting to tell us how awesome we are. Quite the opposite. According to the Bible, in our pride... We have tried to live on our own terms. We've made up our own set of rules. We've ignored the rules that God made, even the obvious ones. And we've lived for the applause of our own hearts. The Bible calls this sin. And it tells us that if we continue in our sin, that one day our bubble of pride will be burst in a moment on what's called the day of judgment. When the holy and just God of the universe will show us the true state of our hearts and give us what we deserve, his wrath and punishment forever. But friend, the good news is that even the most prideful of all sinners, if they will recognize their pride, and if they will lower themselves in humility, can be saved. Now, the good news that the gospel preaches, and the Bible teaches, is, is that God himself, the high and exalted one of heaven, came down to this earth as one of us, the man Jesus Christ. He did that so that in humility, he could take on the punishment we deserve. That's what Jesus hanging in shame on the cross was all about. Because of his humility and his sacrifice, our sins can be forgiven. Because... Jesus submitted himself to the road of suffering and death. It's possible also that we can be lifted up before God. 
Because after Jesus died, God did lift him up. After he humbled himself, he was exalted. Uh, Jesus was lifted up from this earth to heaven itself and given the best of all seats, the seat at the right hand of his Father. And that means for you here this morning, if, if you don't know where you stand before God, the message is wonderfully simple. Just humble yourself by admitting you're a sinner and trust Jesus to forgive you and to give you eternal life with God. Friend, if you do that one day, on the day that's coming for all of us, when you stand before God, you will find your humility in this life to be the best decision you've ever made because only the humble of heart will be honored in heaven. Put your trust in Jesus in humble faith while there's time. Now, to those of us this morning who are Christians, what are we to take from this? Surely there are applications beyond how someone is to be saved. Well, I think there are. I think that they all come by way of gospel humility. Uh, There's a passage that connects the dots for us. This is Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read a big chunk of it. I want you to just listen. Listen for that idea of humility, both in your life and how it connects to the gospel of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Uh, Do you see what Paul is doing, how he's connecting the dots here? Uh, You are to be humble. You are to consider not only your interests, but the interests of others. You are to lower yourself so that others can be lifted up. How how could you possibly do that? Uh, Well, remember this. The mind that's yours in Christ Jesus. And what is it? He started high and he let himself be brought oh so low. He did all that to save sinners like you and I. The gospel is what lets the air out of our puffed up prideful hearts. There's no room to be prideful when you're a sinner saved by grace. And the good news is Jesus was humbled but he didn't stay humbled. Next, he says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was brought low, but then, because he was humble in heart, he was lifted up. And he was honored in the very courts of heaven. See, brothers and sisters, this is the pattern of all disciples that follow Jesus. It is to be brought low in our humility, contrition of our sins, considering others above ourselves, preferring 
what others need before we go after our own preferences with the trust that one day we will be lifted up because the humble of heart will be honored in heaven. Uh, this is something Christians don't just do once. They do it again and again and again. It's Father's Day, so it's fitting for me to share something from my earthly father. Uh, he was an airline pilot his entire life, which meant he was in an industry where what seat you occupied mattered a lot. Uh, if you are in the captain's chair, then there is no question you are in charge. With it comes more responsibility, more standing, more compensation, which is why most pilots aspire to be the captain. Now, my dad had the opportunity at a point when I was pretty young to make the switch from being a co-pilot to a captain. It's not sinful or wrong to want to do that. But he knew that doing so, while it would undoubtedly get him more recognition and be an advance in his career, would come at a cost. He would have to be away from his wife and young kids far more than he would be if he did the humble thing and stayed in the co-pilot chair. So to the end of his career, he remained a co-pilot. Now, I'll be honest, I did not realize what a sacrifice he made and what humility it took to make that decision. But I benefited from it. My whole family did. I realized that is the sort of decision that Christians make again and again in this life, even when no one else notices. Because we believe that only the humble in heart will be honored in heaven. My dear brothers and sisters, don't seek to be well-known by others. Don't seek the seats of honor or the positions of esteem. Don't do things so others will pat you on the back and so that you'll be applauded in the here and now. In humility, serve others, following Jesus down that narrow road, through that narrow door. Because the humble of heart will be honored in heaven. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you for your grace to us that leaves no room for any pride. Forgive us for how easily, for how easily we start to believe our own hype. We get a, promotion at work, and we think that must mean we are especially worthy. You bless us with a family, and we somehow think we've done something to deserve it. Or you even give us an opportunity to do ministry with your word and the power of the Holy Spirit, and our prideful hearts want to take credit for the things you do through us. Jesus, forgive us and bring us back to the foot of the cross where we can learn this basic lesson of humility again. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Skin, sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Help us now to worship 
with humble hearts. We pray in your name. Amen.